Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a very exciting founder, uh, a founder also from Europe. So obviously it gives me flashbacks from when I was uh, born and raised there. But uh, anyhow, I think that we're going to learn a lot about the ecosystem there, about how you build, how you scale. Also, he was involved in a pretty large uh, acquisitions as well, uh, especially from the engineering uh, point of view. It's going to be also very interesting to hear his thoughts. But I guess uh, without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Sasha Labouri. Welcome to the show. That's great. Thank you for having me, Alejandro. So originally from Switzerland, how was life, uh, you know, growing up there? Well, so everybody thinks that I'm actually in Switzerland because I'm hiding money or something shady like that. But I was actually <laughs> born in, in Switzerland and I, I actually never lived anywhere else. So uh, that's where I live. That's where I am. And uh, and uh, yeah, that's that's it. Very cool. So how was how was life uh, growing up there? How was, uh, you know, I mean, I'm sure it's pretty much different to, you know, what people probably here in the U.S., you know, are experiencing also like technology and you know, it's it's at a different pace. Yeah, it is, and and you know, um, I I I live not only in Switzerland but in, in a relatively small town, so uh, uh, I think it it makes you uh, grow up in in a very protected type of environment, and uh, so uh, I had lots of desires and passion and so on. But I think it it made me uh, also a bit naive in some way about the the way things work in business and so on. So I had a lot of unlearning and relearning to do when uh, when I started business. But the life is, 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 is very, very good here. Yeah. And how did you get into this, uh, you know, world of computers, Sasha? Yeah, so very early on as a, as a kid, I, I had a passion for computers and unlike some of my friends, not so much for, uh, for games. So yeah, I was playing games and so on, but more, more interestingly, I, I, I was focused on trying to develop stuff. I'm a bit jealous at kids nowadays, right? Because you, you just go on the internet and you can learn any language, anything. Back then, I remember on my VIC-20 and my Commodore 64, uh, I, 
I, you know, I was reading books uh, on how to develop basic, but they were for uh, mainframes, so that was never working. Or I would buy a magazine in France, but France, uh, they, ha they were using things like Thomson or Amstrad, which was not working either. So, you know, you, you kind of learn the way you can, but uh, there was very much a lack of, uh, of training and education. So I struggled a bit with that, but I really, really loved it. And then you did your computer science degrees, uh, and then you started with your own consulting gig. So tell us about this. Yes, so I always wanted to be uh, an entrepreneur. Uh, so I started actually, uh, I went to a, a business school uh, for college. And, and after that, I, I decided to change uh, to go and do a, a, an engineering school uh, at, at Polytechnic in Lausanne. And uh, it was a, a pretty drastic change. Uh, I was lucky to, to do that because uh, I, I did an internship uh, where my father was working and they had engineers and, and physicists all over the place. And I was like, this is what I love. I don't want to just do business. I actually want to do tech and business. So I went to, to do that. And during my studies, I really wanted to, to become independent and, and start paying for my, uh, my own studies. It, it, it felt fair to me. So I started my companies at the end of my second year at Polytechnic. Uh, and, uh, and, and that was just a, a great passion. We're four friends and we were all uh, trying to find gigs in developing software solutions for enterprises. I did quite a bit of networking, firewalls. So it was the best school ever. Uh, and I ended up actually meeting some of my, uh, my, my teachers uh, at school for the first time during the, the exam, the oral exam. Uh, I would never see them before. So it really took me off uh, the, the, the college track. And, uh, and, but I, I just loved it. And how did you get like this, um, I would say, entrepreneurial mindset? Because you know, I'm, I'm also from Europe, uh, obviously now in the U.S., but, but I know that really there the mentality is you finish school and you either go to a law firm or to a bank. Yes, that's true. And in Switzerland, you can imagine that uh, when I finished in 99, uh, banks were hiring like crazy. Uh, just for the little story, you had banks where you would not get 12 salaries or 13 salaries a year, but come Christmas, you would get, you know, uh, with your 12 salary, you would get 18 or 20 salaries. So they will almost double your yearly salary when uh, Christmas comes. Uh, so the, the idea to do something else and, and, and struggle in life, because frankly, you, it's a lot of struggle, yeah. uh, was, uh, was, was strange. Look, I, I think... In every entrepreneur, at some point, there is a, a slight problem with authority. Uh, you want to do things on your own and, and be independent. So I think there was some of that for me. I wanted to succeed. Um, and I have to say, so it looks like it was all brilliant and, and, and I was uh, an entrepreneur. The word is a bit too strong. Uh, I was doing consulting. I was doing a bunch of gig, uh, but I was really bad at business. So I was very good at was I think I was very good at was what I was doing from an engineering standpoint, from a, a computing standpoint. But to find new customers and 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 to scale, that was very hard. And actually, when I when I finished my studies, I tried to scale my company, my consulting company, and and 
why even in the first place do consulting, right? That's a business that doesn't scale. Um, and and I, I try to do it. I try to find uh, a way to to be both sales and do the work. It was it was a shit show, frankly, and I was not able to scale. So it's only because I, I ended up joining JBoss. JBoss was my real education. It was not uh, something I, I was able to figure out on my own. Got it. So let's talk about JBoss because I know that JBoss for you played a, a very critical role in in, in your career. Uh, and perhaps that was another MBA that you did uh, with, with this business. So tell us about the experience here. Yes, exactly. It, it's the best way to, 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 to say things. It was an MBA. Uh, I remember um, as I was a consultant, so pay, you know, as, as an independent, I thought, okay, how can I do to get more visibility? And so I found this open source project called JBoss, and I thought, well, if I can contribute to open source and be visible thanks to that, I'll find more, more uh, business, which was obviously a very wrong uh, thing to think. Uh, but anyway, I did it. And so I joined the project. I started contributing the, the clustering. And I got to know uh, Mark Fleury, the, the founder of the project, and Mark Fleury uh, had was was in the middle of a transition himself, right? He started uh, the the JBoss project. I'll, I'll give a few stories on on the JBoss stories because I think they're interesting for for entrepreneur as well. Because Mark was a very uh, well, he's not dead. He actually just started this week or last week uh, a new company in the crypto space, uh, but he's is a very uh, smart person. And he has also uh, some uh, interesting uh, uh, instinct as well. So uh, he, he started in '99 the project, which was called EJ Boss uh, back then, and he received a, a letter from Sun Microsystems saying that EJB was a trademark. So he said, "Okay, I'll remove the E. It's J Boss." So you know, he wasn't going very far to solve problems. He was very pragmatic. Uh, and he tried to, uh, to 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 raise money at that time. He was in California, and one of the one of the well-known uh, uh, investor in California, he was not able to raise money. He told him, uh, "Mark, this is not a bad business plan. This is a horrible business plan." So, so essentially, he got back to Atlanta with his wife, his first kid, to live with his in-laws. And so, he would he would later say that uh, he didn't create uh, his first company in his gar- garage. He created his his first companies in in his uh, in-laws' garage. Um, and so it was. It was all the pressure. <laughs> well, that's a problem. He was not seeing the pressure. He was enjoying it because he was living with his in-laws. He was having fun. No need to work. Uh, no need to make food or whatever. So it's actually the father that would come to see him and say, "Mark, it must be hard for you not to have your own home, no? Don't you think so?" And he's like, "No, it's cool." Um, so it took him a bit, a bit of time to to get the memo. Um, so. So, uh, so Mark was in that transition, and uh, I started chatting with Mark. I actually paid because business was not great at that point in time. My last, pretty much my last cash I had in the bank to go to London to take the training that uh, uh, Mark was uh, had just uh, created. So Mark was struggling and was trying to rebound by creating a training, and I I, I was struggling, and I decided to put my last money. To, to go and attend that training. And uh, it was love at first sight between Mark and I, and, and we decided to, to move forward and, and, and build the business and try to figure out how to make money with free software. That's amazing. And obviously you were part of the, 
building and scaling of this, you know, from 2001 where you joined all the way to 2005 where you became the CTO uh, and then also overseeing the, the operations, you know, in, in Europe. So I guess the, um, the, you, you also helped with the acquisition by Red Hat. So I'm sure that being able to see the full cycle here uh, really provided you full visibility on what that journey may look like from like initial to, to, to successful exit. So, so how, was, how was this full cycle for you and what were some of the top uh, key insights that, let's say, you, you took away with you? Yes. Uh, so, so, yeah, that was my best MBA, right? To see a true exec in motion and, and learn from them and, and become less naive and, and so on from the different fundraising we did to, to raising debt, uh, to receiving the first uh, exit uh, proposal, M&A proposal from, from vendors. Um, signing some term sheet and, and you know uh, maybe I, I can't tell it now it's uh, it's you know it's uh, it's 14 years after but I, I remember uh, we had actually a, a, a term sheet we had signed with a, a big company for even a larger amount uh, should I say it was Oracle no I should not say it was Oracle and we um, can edit we can we can edit this so <laughs> if you, do you want us to take it out no, I think it's fine. It's I think it's okay. fine. Uh, I'm okay, sure that uh, I, I'm sure Oracle has, has other uh, issues to deal with right now. <laughs> okay, um, okay, go ahead. <laughs> and and we we had done the entire due diligence. We had negotiated everything. I had renegotiating even the, the compensation of all of engineers, and so we had gone to a level of details that was amazing. We had pre-briefed press and analysts and so on. It was the Friday before the announcement that was taking place on Monday, and uh, I was still in Europe, right? And I was on the board of, of JBA, so uh, I, I had to stay up uh, late to, to be on those calls. And I wake up on, sun, on Saturday morning, and the deal was off. Uh, or more specifically, there was another deal on the table, a very different and very bad deal. So uh, I'm not sure what had happened, uh, how much we were the mouse and, and Oracle was a, was a cat, uh, but it, it went down the toilet in, in just a few hours. Uh, so that's pretty tough to, to, to go through, you know, in, in mental terms, because it's a lot of energy, a lot of... Uh, uh, effort you go through right in those in those processes you have to keep them uh, confidential and so on and and it blows up at the last minute so that was that was a tough one wow but i mean the business ended up getting acquired by red hat for about 350 million so the outcome was um, was good now in the integration because you know people talk a lot about acquisitions and i think that the toughest part is is really integration integration is a beast most acquisitions fail uh, and in yeah. the integration, you actually played a critical role. So why would you say that integrations, you know, are, are so tough? And, and what, what was your lesson as to how you can optimize so that that integration becomes something that is successful? Yes, I think in, all integrations are bound to be, to be hard. Uh, there is a lot of brain rewiring that needs to take place. You're used to do things one way and then suddenly... Uh, you're not home anymore, right? And you need to learn a new way. And, and it's actually tough for both sides. It's not just tough for the company being acquired. It's mostly it's mostly tough for the company being acquired, but it's actually tough on both entities. Um, I, I've learned a few things. Uh, first, I think um, trying to shield people from acquisitions to tell them, okay, 
don't don't bother. Uh, I'll shield you and so on. Is not a good approach. You need to shield people, but you need to expose them while shielding them. It's a bit bizarre what I'm saying, but you need to make sure that they get rewired, they go with the flow, in the new flow, and you protect them from anything that doesn't make sense because the, the, the acquiring company is likely going to come with predefined processes or HR thing and so on that might not make sense just because of, of a different situation. And that can be very tough on people, right? Because they really care about their family, so they care about their salary, and anything that touches on some of those topics can be very, very sensitive. So you need to shield them, but you, you can't lie to them. It's never going to be the same thing again, right? And, and that's particularly true for any company that had a strong culture. And JBoss had a hugely strong culture. And so when you join another company and Red Hat had a strong culture as well, it's a bit like comparing, you know, well, my culture is better than yours. And both sides try to, uh, I, I don't know, win some kind of silly war. And uh, you need to stop that. You need to, to really stop that and, and, uh, uh, and, and tell people that it's, it's, it's not going to be entirely the Red Hat culture. It's certainly not going to be the JBoss culture. It's going to be something new, but it's certainly going to be closer to, to Red Hat culture than, than JBoss. Um, and it takes time. Um, I, I also think that we, we want problem to be, to be fixed too quickly. And uh, we tell people, yeah, we're going to solve those. We're going to work on those to, to help make things happen and so on. My rule of thumb is that hoping that anything will get better before six months is just, uh, is just crazy. Uh, and, and you can fix a bunch of things in the very short term, right? But just for your brain to be used to the new way, to start appreciating people, to start understanding who they are and that actually they don't want to be bad with you or they're not silly, they're not stupid. It's just that they come from a different place. It just takes time and you cannot compress that. So I think six months is a bare minimum. And, and knowing this, I think it's, it's great if you get to tell people, you know what, stick with it and, and, and don't expect magical things to take place before six months because we're just going to lie to ourselves. And, and, and that would actually help set a kind of a, an objective to people, you know? Understood. Understood. So I, I guess in your case, Sasha, I mean, you were, you were here for quite a bit, you know, J-Boss, then Red Hat, you know, obviously you had a, a, quite a, a senior role as well here. Why did you decide to take the leap of faith? What happened for you to, to say, hey, CloudBeast, you know, is going to be my, my, my next, uh, I would say, face in my journey? Yeah, it was two things. The first one for me was that it, it was a two-step process. It was, I want to leave Red Hat and I want to create something. It, it was really a two-step process. The first de decision to leave Red Hat was because at some point I was, I had the feeling that I was part of the furniture. What that means is that I was well-paid. I had good stock options. I had uh, a team I really liked, uh, I really loved. Um, but it, it, it was not exciting anymore. And at that point in time, I knew I had to take a decision. Either I was leaving or I was diving in again and put a revolution or, you know, uh, uh, find the next big thing and so on. But it was way too comfortable. And it was not great for me because I was a bit bored. But actually, it was dangerous for Red Hat as well. Red Hat needed new blood. Red Hat needed new energy, new idea and so on. So either I felt I was able to create that new stimulus 
or hire the people or, or be a change agent. But if it was to be a static agent, then I was doing a big disservice to myself and to, and to Red Hat. And, and uh, uh, that started to be depressing uh, to, to me, knowing that I was actually not a change agent. So I decided to leave. Okay, so then what happened next? So what happened next is that uh, I, I always wanted to, to do my own company. And obviously, JBoss was an amazing story. But the problem with JBoss is that I was on the, the passenger seat, right? Mark, uh, I had full visibility on everything. And Mark was, was very, very nice and a great mentor for me because he, he was very transparent, was asking my opinion for a, a, a lot of decisions. But I was still on the passenger seat in the end. He had to make the call. In the end, he was the one uh, uh, on the phone with people and negotiating and, and, and doing the hard thing, right? And I was very much aware that being on the passenger seat was not the same thing that, than driving the vehicle. And so I, I knew I, I wanted to start something. Uh, and I, I wanted ideally to stay uh, uh, you know, peaceful for six months to a year. But very quickly, you feel like you're going to be legacy that your network, you're going to lose your network and so on, which uh, candidly is not true. Uh, it's more sticky than you think. And uh, uh, so I ended up being an ass at home. Uh, my wife uh, was telling me, okay, you know what, go do your thing. But uh, uh, I was not really uh, agreeable to, to live with at that point in time. Uh, so that's when I started having discussion with my co-founder, Francois Deschery, who was still at Red Hat. And we decided to create CloudBees. Very nice. So what ended up being the business model of CloudBees? So um, it, it, we didn't go very far, actually. Uh, we knew that the cloud was, was very appealing, even so I had to admit that initially I thought the cloud was, was relatively boring because I was looking at it mostly as a, uh, as, as a new data center. So it took me time to absorb why it was so magical. And um, my background was, was Java, uh, was enterprise Java. And I felt that uh, it was way too complicated. It was way too hard for developers to have an impact. And there should be a better way. And we realized that if we were doing the right things, we could leverage the cloud to make it much, much easier for developers to have an impact, to deploy an application, and, and to go from essentially an ID to something that scales in production with no friction. So no operation, no nothing, just go. Um, but that was obviously requiring a slightly different approach because unlike some of the you know one man, one one dog type of companies, um, Java developers tend to have to follow a process. We wanted to to focus more on on enterprises. And so that's when we decided to have a, a Jenkins uh, part of what we were doing to have the complete life cycle in the cloud and not just the deployment target, because back then with Heroku and Engineard, uh, the, the platform as a service we had back then, it was really just about deployment. It was not the full life cycle. So we were the first company to actually build that. So during those early days, what would you say was the biggest challenge for you guys? Um, I think the, initially the biggest challenge, uh, it was a series of challenges. Um, it was to, to find the, the initial people to 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 join the company because you, you you know it's funny when you when you talk when I was at Red Hat I would talk to people and they would tell me oh you know I'm upset I want to leave I want to do something else I want to make revolution and so then you create your company and you're like okay so you join <laughs> to make the revolution with me well you know uh, I kind of appreciate the salary and uh, what would I get in terms of health insurance and what like okay well you're not ready for that obviously. Uh, so finding the right talent 
uh, was was the first one. Uh, and then I think it's executing with the first uh, minimum viable product that you think is is you know you always think, especially as an engineer, that it's not going to be big enough. Uh, and so forcing yourself to to reduce some things that's relatively small was uh, was was my first challenge. Um, and overall, in my career, I think uh, I'm 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 still a, very much an engineer at heart. So I need to force myself to think more as a product manager or as a salesperson or a marketing person. But I always go back to my old habits of being an engineer. So that that tends to be my my main weakness. Got it. And you know, it's interesting that before you mentioned that when you were doing your consulting gig, you had the um, you had you were lacking some of those skill sets, perhaps around business. Uh, and around sales. Yeah. So how did you correct those? So now I know what I need. And uh, I, I know that I can do a, a bit of everything. So I tend to be a, a pretty good generalist, uh, which means that I tend to suck at all of them as well. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> there are a bunch of work for, for which I don't even try anymore. And, and, and I, I'm really looking for people with a passion and talent to do marketing and to do sales and so on so instead of trying a, a, a one mind uh, one, one man trick you know that can do it all i i just don't think it's possible um when when people are good at many things well you typically hear about them because uh, they would be on on tv or they would be uh, very famous but most people are actually uh, good at very few things and and they should stick to it yeah yeah and and you guys have raised quite a bit how much money have you guys raised so we've raised about a hundred million, but part of this is a bit more than a hundred. But bit of uh, a bit of that is debt. Some of that is is equity. So I would say pure equity is around uh, eighty million. And typically for a business uh, of the nature of yours, what are what are the um, uh, what is that pattern of let's say expectations that investors typically have at at every at every stage? I mean, you guys have done your A round, your B round, your C round, your D. You you've even done an E round. So I guess. What are the typical expectations that you encounter from financing cycle to financing cycle? Yes, it, 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 it's very hard to to hear you uh, list all of the rounds uh, we've done. Um, I don't have any specific pride, by the way, in raising money. Sometimes there is a bit of a, a pride to raising a lot of money or raising a lot uh, frequently and so on. That's that's not my case. You know, you, you can find companies that didn't raise much and have been extremely uh, successful. I think Amazon, uh, was it? No, it was Salesforce. I just read recently, only uh, burned five millions of cash before uh, being profitable and, and, and whatever that was. So it, 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 I have huge, I'm hugely impressed by that, not by the opposite. Yeah. Um, and so... It's true. The more you move forward, the more the expectations become financial expectations, right? Show me your your metrics, show me your EBITDA, show me... So it's, it becomes a lot more financial. However, you also find along the way different type of, uh, of, 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 of investors, right? You can still find, even at the C, D, and E round, investors that are very much market slash strategic focused. Obviously, they, they care about financials and so on. Uh, I would say that the spread is much wider, right? If you if you do seed or series A, pretty much everybody will focus on, on the, the market, the strategy, what's the opportunity and so on. Very little on, on, on financials because there is little, very little to discuss. Um, as, as, you, as you move forward, the span 
of of uh, of investors will tend to grow more towards financials, but you can still uh, you can still get a, a pretty widespread of of attitude. And you know, it's interesting what you mentioned on on you know Salesforce and then also on raising capital. I mean, I I agree with you. I don't think that you know people and and you read this on the press and so forth. That I think that. To a certain degree, we've lost the direction on how you really are able to measure the success of a company. I don't think it's on how much money you've raised. I don't think on how many employees you have. More than anything, I think it's on the revenue that you're able to generate per, per employee. Yes, absolutely. You need to build a real business. And, and I, I feel like I'm, I'm old already in, in many ways because when I started raising in 2010, it was a very different environment from where we are today, right? Now we're talking about seed rounds at uh, four, eight, 10 million sometimes. Uh, that's bigger than my Series A, you know? And so everything has changed. So uh, I don't want to draw too many comparisons. That would not be, uh, that would not be reasonable to, to draw too many comparisons because the ecosystem is very different. However, I think that anytime you have kind of uh, the, 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 the WhatsApp of the world, right? Uh, where a company is able to, maybe WhatsApp is not the best example, but uh, uh, Instagram or those kind of companies where very early on, with pretty much no revenue, very small entities were able to sell for a billion. It created a, a, a next generation of companies and entrepreneurs that wanted to get to a billion in exit. Uh, not by building a real business, but by making a coup or getting that many users or some trick. And, and I found a, a generation of, uh, uh, maybe generation is too strong of a word, but a, a series of entrepreneurs that were very focused on how to look good to an investor or an M&A. And again, it's, it's silly Sasha, the naive uh, Swiss guy uh, who, who is too much of an engineer talking because maybe they're right. Maybe, you know, who am I to say they shouldn't do that if they can get an amazing exit? But I'm still pretty traditional in thinking that what I love about the job of entrepreneur, it's about creating a real company with strong foundations that grows revenue with, with positive margins and, and, and have uh, happy employees. And, and, you know, that to me is, 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 is a big pleasure in, in, in growing a company. And so, yeah, uh, so sometimes I have some, some regret for that. And I, I felt it, it wrongly shaped uh, uh, some, some entrepreneurs sometimes. And I guess as, as you're looking back uh, here, Sasha, what would you say has been maybe like a near death? Because, I mean, you've been at it now for, let's say, almost 10 years with CloudBees. And, you know, as we all know, there's not such thing as a straight line uh, as an entrepreneur. So as, as you're looking back and through all the different experiences that you've had, what is, let's say, one experience that, that you look back and you're really proud of? Maybe like one experience where it was like a near-death experience, like a serious breakdown that ended up becoming a breakthrough for the business and perhaps for you. Yeah, 2013 was a tough one. Uh, we, we were uh, back then. So, so imagine the context, right? We raised our Series A uh, six months-ish after we started. I, I've put the seed money. Then... Um, so again, uh, let, let's put back that, that in the context of what it was before, right? Series A was four millions, uh, felt huge back then. Now feels uh, feels less huge. Uh, then Series B, we raised that less than six eight months after that. Uh, series B with uh, light speed, uh, 10.5 millions, felt huge as well, and um, and so it went very fast. 
And when that happens like that, you don't necessarily learn through the steps what you should be doing. It just comes for free a bit. And anything that comes for free, you end up paying the price at some point. And um, we were very happy about the platform as a service we're building from a product slash engineering standpoint. It was great. But truthfully, from a market standpoint, OpenShift and Cloud Foundry had emerged as, as big competitors, and there was a complete lack of standards on the on the market. So uh, uh, the market, you know, companies were a bit worried to invest too early on something that would just need to be rewritten or, or redeployed. So it, 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 we were growing nicely, right? But but not enough to justify uh, uh, to, to, to be a, a VC-funded company. So when we thought about raising the Series C, we really thought it would be done in a month. I'm not lying. We were so high. And uh, I remember that even one of uh, the, the, the partner at the VC firm that wanted to raise uh, that wanted to invest in the Series B was not able to do it because it was not a senior partner, was so pissed that that, that person left uh, the VC firm he, he, was, uh, he was working at to join CloudBees as, as, uh, as, uh, as business development. So, you know, that's the level of, of happiness and, and, and comfort we had. So I was thinking between that ex-partner as a VC firm and, and myself, we're going to freaking raise money in 60 hours. And uh, it took us a year. And, uh, and not only did it take us a year, but we had to take a bridge mid-year from our existing investors. Nobody wanted to put money in, in CloudBees because PASS was, was uh, getting uh, passed, as we could yeah. say. Uh, and uh, I really thought we, we, we could die, right? When you start taking a bridge money. And uh, we got saved thanks to Verizon Ventures because Verizon really liked our PASS and wanted to OEM it as part of uh, Verizon Cloud. We all forgot about Verizon Cloud by now, but it was a, it was a thing in 2013. They had invested an amazing amount of money. They had uh, acquired companies, so it, it was really a good thing. And they uh, said, yep, we're going to invest in CloudBees and we believe in, in what you're doing. And so that, that was amazing. So I'll, I'll, I'll never thank them enough for, for making this. Wow. And a couple of months after, we decided to change the focus of the company to not be a platform as a service anymore in 14, but to be uh, focused on Jenkins, on continuous integration and continuous delivery. So you can imagine the type of discussion you're having with Verizon a couple of months after when you go and tell them, you know, this past thing, if you want it, you can get it, but we're, we're not going to do that anymore. It was a tough one, but uh, yeah. hey, it's going to end up to be great for Verizon. Understood. Understood. I mean, really amazing. Amazing, Sasha. So I know that you're a guy of predictions. I know that you've published even blog posts about what's going to happen in 2025. So let's do a, a little exercise here together, hey, Sasha. Let's say you go to sleep tonight and you wake up in the morning and it's five years after. Uh, what, what, what would you say or where would you like to see or how would you see CloudBees or the world in which CloudBees lives or is living in uh, once that vision, or let's say, since that vision has been realized, let's say, you know, you wake up and then all of a sudden this vision that you guys are pushing for is all of a sudden it's there. What does that world look like? Yeah, so that world is going to be immensely cloud-based and public cloud-based. I, I think it's, uh, I'm not being a, making a big prediction here, but we're seeing this space constantly accelerate. So cloud will be massive. I think, um, 
Oracle, since we talked about Oracle, companies like Oracle will have been bought by PE firm uh, and they will just be uh, revenue streams. I, I don't think those companies have uh, what it takes to, to, to exist anymore. Um, and I, I, I truly think that software will have truly become a business concept. Today, we're still in that transition where software tries to be uh, better in terms of hooking with the rest of the business. But by, by then, I think developers will all be very connected to the business. And everything they do, when we say that developers want to have an impact, they actually will want to have a business impact. And they will understand very well through the tools they can use how what they're coding right now is having an impact tomorrow and the, the week after. And, and that's going to be a, an amazing place to, to live, right? If you, if you can actually visualize and measure the impact you have as a developer, uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. So uh, that, that's where we're going to be. As for CloudBees, where it's going to be, um, I don't know. And um, I, I, care, I care very much about the vision we have for the market in terms of building, you know, we've created the software delivery management category, right? Uh, raise, essentially the equivalent of CRM, but for software delivery. We, we think that's really what the market needs and is lacking today. So that's what we're building. So I think this will be a reality as to whether CloudBees will be an independent company or will have joined one of the uh, of the Borg out there. Uh, it's uh, it's TBD. I'm, I'm a strong believer that any market goes through phases of consolidation and 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 innovation. And so uh, you know it's it's uh, it's it's quite likely that uh, a lot of the companies that are independent today will not be independent tomorrow. Absolutely, absolutely. So one of the questions that I typically ask the guests that come on the show, Sasha, is. You know, you've been at this for, I would say, 10 years. No? So you started in 2010, now it's 2020. Uh, and obviously, there's many lessons. It's been a tremendous run. So I guess if you had the opportunity to have a chat with your younger self, with that younger Sasha, uh, what would be that one piece of business advice that you would give to yourself before launching a business and why, knowing what you know now? Yeah, so I think I would tell myself, First, take care of yourself. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint, right? So always be persistent. Look at the big picture and the long term. Don't don't rush. Uh, that's the first one. And and then I would tell me to to let people go faster. Uh, that's a weakness I, I clearly have because I need to create relationship with people I, I work with. It is, I have to feel close. I have to to have this. Uh, uh, sensitivity to 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 my relationship, uh, but the problem with that is is once once people are not a fit anymore, you need to let them go. And and I've never been in a situation where I thought, oh, you've been too quick to let that people that person go. Right? I'm always too late. And so uh, I, I would, uh, you know, that that would be my 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 main advice. Very cool. So Sasha, for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? The simplest is either on Twitter, Sasha Labouré, or simply, you know what, I'm, I can even give you my email address. It's my first name at mylastname.com. So it's Sasha at Labouré.com. Feel free to send me a note. Uh, I'm always happy to, 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 to interact with uh, other entrepreneurs. Wonderful, Sasha. Well, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Thank you for having me, Alejandro. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, 
share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.